Across the Pond Golf Podcast, a discussion about performance and enjoyment in golf and life. Okay. All right, and we're off. All right, welcome to the Across the Pond Golf Podcast. Today's guest is Graham Leslie from Golf Data Lab. Graham, it's a pleasure to have you on here. So we definitely want to get kind of right into the meat of what Golf Data Lab is, a little bit about your background in golf. It's uh, it's definitely very interesting. So if you could start us off, maybe tell you sure. tell us a little bit about the Data Lab, how long it's been around, and then your golfing history as well. Oh, well, as you guys know from personal experience, what it is, so I'll uh, explain to your audience. But in answer to your question, I was an enthusiastic amateur for all my life. Um, I got a phone call in 2006 um, from the caddy of a golfer, a young, good, talented 18-year-old in the British amateur. And um, a friend of mine who was caddying that week, he said, you do something on your uh, on your computer about stats and stuff, don't you? Um my golfer here is keeping notes and, you know, pencil and paper. And I just wondered uh, if you could have a chat to him, find out what he does and see if you can help him. And Golf Data Lab was literally born from that one telephone conversation in 2006. I said, okay, put him on. So I said, right. Um, so what is it that you're doing? And he described that he put an H down and tracking where his drives were going and circles and where the balls on the green were going and, um, how many putts he's taking, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I thought, and you're doing this on paper? Yes, he said. He said, well, there might be an easier way. Um, good luck this week. Um, I'll get back in touch with John and um, he'll get in touch with you and uh, we'll see if we can help. You. And I literally, because I was using spreadsheets a lot uh, with my work anyway, I literally just took the game of golf and put it onto a spreadsheet. And I suppose the beauty was having a blank sheet of paper. I had no preconceptions, no rules with which to follow. And I was able to take my experience, which is well over 50 years now. Um, 1968 was the first professional golf I saw, Lee Trevino. And um, I, I watch more professional and amateur golf than anyone else I know. Um, and given that the experience that I had of the game um, was considerable, um, but never having worked in golf before, I started with a blank sheet of paper, which I call beginning at the end. What is it I'm trying to achieve? What I want to do is to capture his data in such a way to give him feedback, data output, that can help him identify his strengths and weaknesses and help him become a better golfer. And uh, it took six months um, before I had anticipated all the infinite possibilities that can happen in a game of golf. I think it took about three months before I actually remembered, you know what? One of the things that can happen in golf is you can lose a golf ball because this kid was so good, he wasn't losing a golf ball. And it wasn't until about 10 or 12 weeks that he actually lost his first golf ball. Oh, I never thought of that. So I had to go back and, and oh, penalty shots. That's one of the, so we eventually worked out that there are seven different types of golf shots in the game. And by measuring the performance of these, we don't measure penalty shots necessarily or positional recovery shots, which are two distinct golf shot types in the game, um, but certainly driving path reaccuracy approaches and different categories of approaches, short game and putting. These are the, these are the if you like, catch-all umbrellas um, where we put the various shot types and then we start measuring them. And, you know, armed with that, the bones of the structure, if you like, of performance measurement, um, we were invited to show what we were doing to the Scottish Golf Union. Uh, the RNA uh, invited us on board to discuss various aspects of performance measurement. And it grew into the guts of a business idea. Now, I'm not a businessman. I, I, I don't like the commercial elements and negotiations and all that sort of stuff. But there was interest in the work that I was doing. And it grew to an extent that um, we were able to push the button on getting so some very clever software people on board. And we designed a program for performance measurement that went live at the start of 2009. 
and that hasn't changed since. So in the two and a half years of research and development, we were able, touch wood, and thank goodness, to anticipate that our data capture function was robust. In other words, we had anticipated all the infinite possibilities that can happen in a game of golf, and there it is. The secret is what we do with the information. And we, we've been very lucky in that our client base, if you like, the whole time, uh, for the last 12, going on 13 years of data capture, has been at the elite end of golf. Because when England came on board in 2011, you know, it was all their best golfers. Um, we expanded into Europe. Um, we're capturing data from over 100 countries worldwide. But um, it seems to be, the profile seems to be the best golfers, the best amateurs, and now, you know, professionals. And we have data getting recorded at, on every tour throughout the world and uh, every major that's played, you know, we'll have uh, clients recording on our software. So it was a bit by accident rather than design, Chris. It was uh, opportunity that one phone call came in and um, I played with it. And with this one golfer was, you know, giving him the mechanisms by which he recorded his rounds of golf. I was converting that uh, data into meaningful data output to help them. And that's exactly what we did the following year with the first, the pilot golfer with the Scottish Golf Union, as was at Scottish Go Scotland Golf Now. We started with a pilot to prove that um, the work that we did could help the golfers improve. And, uh, and that's how it all started, basically, by accident rather than design. James sometimes has to remind me, I love statistics and data, and sometimes has to remind me that some of the best things in life happen on accident or spontaneously. So I love that. Uh, and who are, like, who are a few of the guys, maybe just a few of the pros that you guys work with on a daily basis? Um, I guess my philosophy has always been um, confidentiality. Um, I started off life as a solicitor and therefore maybe that client pro confidentiality thing has um, has been ingrained, but it's in the public domain, not through me, but from my clients. But Robert McIntyre is um, a high profile client in the top 50 of the world. And he's been mentioning me um, in interviews, etc. But I've worked with um, golfers higher than him in the world rankings. Um, so but they're not, all, they're not all top 50 and top 100 of the world. In fact, there's very few, uh, you know, at that level. Um, there are tons of professionals on Challenge Tour, on the EuroPro, um, some on the, uh, you know, the European uh, tours, the Alps Tour, for instance, as well as in the Pro EPD Tour, um, and amateur golf as well. I'd say our... Client split is 50-50 between amateurs and professionals, but they're literally at all levels. Include, I mean, we've got some some people started at the age of 10 using Golf Data Lab. And in fact, one kid, very exciting prospect, um, who just made the England boys squad, he was 13 years old when he um, started to using Golf Data Lab. And on the other end of the scale, we had a... In our early years, we had a 66-year-old guy who had just retired, playing off a 19. And um, I thought, oh, that's a different profile for us. Um, but yeah, if you're sure you want to measure your game, here you go. And um, he reduced his handicap to five in two years. He actually wow. he retired, I think, to your neck of the woods, Chris, out in uh, Canada. But I was staggered. That he had more time. He'd finished work. He's playing golf every day, but he got serious about measuring it. So it it, it can apply. It can help anybody, uh, but they've got to want to uh, improve, of course. I think uh, most of us are aware of Peter Drucker's famous uh, quote. You know, obviously, what gets measured gets managed. And I mean, you hit on it right there, Graham. That most of your players are elite golfers and. And I think, obviously, with the, the sort of amateur game, like, you know, we, we had a discussion off camera before we started, and, and whatever the, the average handicap is, it's certainly up in the high teens. It, it's crazy that more people aren't measuring their statistics. And it's not, 
it's not just statistics, you know, I mean, it makes it sound boring, but once you get into it, it's, it's more of the whole sort of encompassing performance side of golf. Like if you want to get better, which I mean, I don't, I've never met anyone that doesn't want to get better at golf, regardless of how much time you've got or how much, you know, effort you want to put in, like, you, you know, we all want to get better. Um, and, Golf Data Lab, it's such an easy way to do that because it literally just pinpoints exactly where you're good, where you're not, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, do you want to just dive into sort of what you think might be a sort of barrier for, for the higher handicapper? And, and perhaps, obviously, the, the guy that you've just demonstrated there, going from 19 to, to 5, Um you know, how useful that was for him. Why, why shouldn't everyone be doing this, you know? I think, I think there's an easy answer to that question, and that is desire. And um, I remember Nigel Edwards uh, answered um, a question really well. I asked him, what is the difference here? And he said, that's very simple, Graham. He said, the best will do anything and everything they can to get an edge. And what that means is that they have the desire to improve to such an extent that they will literally look at anything that does it. And uh, the example that we sometimes have often recited was when Matthew Fitzpatrick was uh, in the England boys squad in 2012, he recorded more rounds on Golf Data Lab than any other English golfer, pro or amateur, male or female. Because I guess he's a very intelligent lad, a very talented golfer, but no one could really have predicted it 2012 that he was going to have such a meteoric rise uh, in his golf game because that's the beauty of golf. You can't predict which any of these talented youngsters are going to make it and, and who are. But I think in his case, you know, he had that desire to do anything and everything that could uh, get the edge. And um, he saw performance measurement and golf data lab as, as a tool that could help him get better on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And I think the barrier that you mentioned is really how much do you want it, you know, desire? How much do you really want to improve? And it might be the case that, um, for instance, I never, ever practiced. You know, I played a lot. Um, but to me, golf was a game like football. I played every sport, but football and golf were the ones I was quite good at, the ones I enjoyed the most. But they were never a career opportunity for me. They were literally just a game. And, and, and we can talk later about, you know, what level of stats. But, you know, I wasn't doing anything really clever when I moved to St. Andrews in 1999. I thought, oh, home of golf, how exciting. I'll uh, keep a spreadsheet of my scores on every hole. And what I found really interesting was having been a four or five handicap my whole life, um, Oh, there is no doubt I could have played a lot, a lot better uh, if I'd practiced or, or took it semi-seriously. But within three months of keeping a spreadsheet, my handicap came down to two, to 2.0 within three months, which is quite significant. I mean, the gulf between a two handicapper as I was um, and a scratch golfer, let alone the plus three, plus four, plus five elite amateur golfers we have today, is a chasm. It's a, and then there's another massive golf from elite amateur golf to professional golf. And within professional golf, there are massive differences between the Euro Pro Tour and the Challenge Tour and then the European Tour and, and PGA Tour. You know, there are, there are significant levels and differences in the levels of golf in this game. So I would say to anybody at whatever level, um, and if, especially if you're a professional golfer, and you'd be surprised how many of them do not measure their games properly. It is getting better. The culture is getting much better. I think you guys spoke about some of the other influences in data capture. We know about TrackMan and launch monitors that are very, very useful in, in practice and preparation and knowing how far we hit our clubs and spin rates and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, data on nutrition with whoops or whoops, whatever they're called, you know, that's all part of the preparation and practice function. So I, I see on the website, we've got, I see the circle of golf as being three things. There's practice and preparation, 
Then you go out and perform. And then, and this is where we fit in, measurement and reflection. And unless we're using the data that is automatically being generated by playing golf, because there's quite a lot of data in a round of golf. Well, on average, 72 individual bits of data. And if you play as the pros do, you know, and rack up more than 5,000 shots in, um, in a year on average, sometimes 8,000, depending on how often they play and how many cuts they make, obviously, then once you're getting into the thousands of shots, by analysing those shots is um, some very revealing pictures can come out. So um, it is open to everybody. It's less than 100 quid a year for an amateur to use Golf Data Lab. And um, I encourage them to try it, knock yourself out. And But some will analyze their stats more than others. We're all different personalities. Like you are saying, maybe Chris is more stats geeky than you are, James. But at the end of the day, you only get out of anything what you put into it. And um, some golfers will pour over everything uh, in their stats. And... Um, Others will just record it and leave it to their analyst if they've got one or their coach to identify that, uh-oh, uh, our iron play is getting, you know, slackening off in the last month or two or, you know. But I reckon the best use of Golf Data Lab from a coaching perspective is to sell positives, as I call it. You know, it's too easy in this game of Never Perfect to identify weaknesses because, you know, every golfer in the world has an area of their game that they can improve without shadow of a doubt. Um, it is very rare that you will see any um, golfer above average in everything, you know, whether it be driving, um, whether it be, you know, iron play, whether it be long irons, medium irons, short irons, short game, including bunker play. Um, putting, whether it's holding out or medium range putting or, or long range, but even in just the five categories of driving, path three accuracy, approaches, short game putting, you will very rarely find any golfer who are above average in all five. And remember, average as per average at professional level golf, average at elite men's amateur level golf, and we've got data for under sixteen boys and under sixteen girls. So we know what is good, bad, and different at every level of the game. And that's valuable feeding back to the golfers that um, they can identify where their game is at, whether it be driving, um, iron play, or whatever the case may be. And uh, here's an interesting fact that uh, the world of golf might not have known before we started to peel it back like this. Men are better putters than women. And, <laughs> and women are better drivers than men. Now, what I mean by better is um, when it comes to driving accuracy and traditional driving accuracy as fairways hit, then there is no question that the women are 2.5% better than the men in uh, terms of hitting fairways and semi, getting it on the short stuff. Now, one could argue that, oh, but they don't hit it as far. So they're definitely going to be playing more of the short stuff. And that is true because when we look at the under-16s, they are straighter again than the professionals even. Um, again, one can say, well, they don't hit it as far. And of course, your dispersion when you're not hitting it as far, the fairways are slightly wider. So, you know, we're unearthing stuff about the game of golf all the time. And uh, it's been a fascinating journey seeing the difference between the sexes, between the different levels of golf and different ages as well. I mean, who does, I thought we were all great partners when we were kids. Have a look at the data. Very rare to have uh, expert teenagers. When it, we've had some, Matthew Fitzpatrick was a very good putter. Not the best. We've had some brilliant teenagers, but a handful, really. Putting is an art that comes with age, skill, and experience. And we, we couldn't have even anticipated that. Um, because as I say, I just thought we were great partners when we were kids, but I'm forgetting about all the three putts we had, obviously, you know, and we weren't measuring it. So there are certain fascinating revelations on the whole game level that come out when we start to capture as much data as we have, which is tens of millions of shots now. What I will say, Graham, is firstly for the men, Chris and I are definitely bringing that average down. So it's, <laughs> we apologise. Um, but as far as the, you know, you say that, oh, uh, 
you do get better at putting with age and, and kids, those how kids are better golfers and, and whatnot. But without tracking anything, you, you really don't know. We just uh, sort of attach emotions to it. We tell ourselves stories. And I mean, you'll know this. You, you go down your, your sort of local club and you've got a 22 handicap that says, I'd take on anyone at putting. I'd beat the best player in the world at putting. And I'm like, but, but would you though? And uh, and how do you know that? And and they'll say, well, because they hold a, a twenty foot putt three years ago, they think they're a great. <laughs> That's harsh. But well, I'll tell you on that, uh, James. One of the European tour pros I worked with, multiple winner on tour, um, when he started recording his golf with us for the first time, he wasn't very happy at what he saw because. Um, you know, he had this impression that he was the best putter in the world. And that's great because with putting being so confidence-based and mental, more than technical, in fact, Tom Watson said putting is only 10% mechanics. He had this impression, like 10,000 others do, that he was the best putter in the world. And, and therefore, it was a bit of an affront to him to find that his, um, his putting, you know, I've I've got a dozen amateurs that putt better than this, I stupidly said. Um, and uh, all right, I'm, and he made a decision, right, I'm going back to the putter I used when I was the best putter in the world. And I thought, how can you even say that? Because at that time, 2009, 2010, there was no mechanism by which we could separate who was the best putter in the world. Now, when putts gained or strokes gained putting, came in and was retrospective um, back to about, I can't remember the year when it started, but when Luke Donald was number one in the world for 2009, 2010 and 2011, a three-year period during which he made number one golfer in the OWGR, that was a phenomenal achievement, the likes of which we've not been close to seeing again. I think we will have somebody who will be the best putter in the world for a couple of years. We've just never seen since then somebody have two consecutive years of being number one. In fact, Jason Day had one year where he was the best. He was the only one that averaged over one plus one on strokes gained putting. And then the next year slipped way down, putted very badly. And then the next year was number one again. So he, he had a spell when he was world number one of putting very well. Um, but the conversation about, well, is putting that important or should we be hitting four irons till our hands bleed? I don't see it like that. I don't like to compare, you know, driving versus par three tee shots versus how important are your bunker shots one around. We play on average, by the way. And how important is putting? Because I see golf as a whole. I see the 70 or 71 or 72 as your average score being made up of all the shots, not fractions of shots, all the shots. And therefore, our philosophy from day one has been very, very simple. Identify how well we're doing with each component part of the game. Identify which need more work and work on them. So, yeah, it's um, we all we're all individuals. We've all got our, uh, our own way of looking at things. But um, I've tended to not think in fractions. It's a game of very fine margins, particularly at the top. However, you know, in order to tweak and help the golfer to improve the fine margins, you know, fractions don't do it. Well, fractions of his averages and his performance month by month. But in terms of looking at the game, nothing's really changed. I still look at, you know, driving, par three accuracy approaches, short game and putting separately. And how important they are to the overall, you know, performance. Um, I think they're all important personally. And I don't put any emphasis on one more than the other. And it's not really a debate or a conversation I get into. But if we are forced to, greens and regulation, key stat in golf, without question. If you can hit more greens than the rest of your peers, you're going to be contending more often. So, yeah, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, if you can hit it straight and hit lots of greens, you're going to be contending. But, you know, what's so fascinating is the different levels of ability. I mean, I remember in the early days, we had two guys whose average putts per round, 31.68, and yet they were completely different golfers despite hitting 
a very similar number of greens and regulation. One guy was young and an amateur, a very good amateur and a pro now, and has won on the European Tour. He, um, he was terrible from six feet and under. His holding out was shocking. But put him at 15 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, he holds a good, he, he holds his fair share. The other was a seasoned professional who unfortunately never made it. And I think mm, has given up golfing now. And his putting putts per round was identical to the young amateur. However, he was very, very good from six, seven, eight feet and in and never hold anything from 10, 12, 15, 25 feet, etc. When I say hardly anything, his percentage of conversions from the longer distances were terrible. And why would that be? He had obviously had many years of trying at this game without succeeding at it necessarily. And um, in his mind, his putting was a weakness. He was right. The data showed that his putting was the weakest part of his game, but perhaps years of non-performance on the greens had turned him into a less than confident. And when he was at 20 feet, I better not three putt this. Whereas the young kid didn't know any better. He was just out there battering the golf ball and holding putts for fun. But technically, and he was 17 at the time, technically he wasn't very strong. He had this languid, long backstroke deceleration. He was in breach of some of the non-negotiable fundamentals of putting, as I call them. And it shows up when you're close around the hole. So that another one of the slides I put up in my presentations is of a fingerprint. You know, I say that... Um, we all have our individual stats DNA, our own fingerprint. And I've never seen two golfers with the same stats. You get the same balance of stats, but we're all different. And you, you might laugh and say that you and Chris might not be the straightest of drivers, but even within your driving, I guarantee there will be different patterns if we look deep enough. And uh, and of course, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <that's>... Absolutely. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, there there is no there's no blueprints for playing good golf. There are there are certain things like you say, greens in reg, keep it straight. If you're in the trees every single hole, you're going to struggle to put a good score together. Um, but at the same time, you could be the best in the world at holding out. But if again, if you if you struggle into the greens, it doesn't matter, does it? You know, if you can absolutely. Want but if it takes three to get to the green, it, it's not going to make any difference. I think that in the early days, when I examined, obviously, you know, 2006, when I got the phone call, one of my first reference points was to the main tours, just to see how they measured. And, you know, driving accuracy shows us how many fairways we hit, which is great. But if you're playing a Lynx course, and I was playing exclusively Lynx golf, um, apart from opens on partline courses, and I just preferred Lynx golf. It was more fun and less trees. Um, but I was quite a straight driver, just a terrible iron player. Um, you know, we can miss the fairway by two yards, and we will be no worse off than if the ball was four yards further that way and on the fairway, because I'm on the semi here. I've got the same approach to the green. However... That still counts as a fairway missed. Whereas I could have snapped it out of bounds. That's a fairway missed as well. So the degree by which we missed the fairway was something that I was anxious to capture, which is why we invented the driving accuracy to fairways and semi stat. And in America and presumably Canada, Chris, you know, there is much less first cut or semi on the golf course designs over there. So we see not as big a difference on, you know, between fairways hit and fairways and semis hit in America and, and Canada. We don't have huge amounts of, of Canadian uh, data on, on GDL. But compared to the UK, where a lot of links golf gets played, lots of semis uh, is, is found. And similarly with greens and regulation, um, there was no degree by which the green is missed. I mean, you could just miss a green and be on the fringe or you could have knocked it, thinned it through the back and out of bounds. You know, it's still a missed green. So greens and regulation, including putts from just off, was something we invented simply to capture the amount of birdie putts um, that we were facing in a round of golf on average. 
And the traditional scrambling stuff, I always have a problem with this. I had a client who, Augusta in the Masters um, last week, you know, he had a beautiful up and down from the front of the eighth. Um, he was out of position with his drive, knocked it to the front, front edge. He had a long chip, 40 yards maybe, and stiffed it and tapped it in. So in the old way of measuring golf, that is scrambling one out of one, you know, an up and down. At the 11th, he, on, on the Sunday, he hit a terrible pitch. It was from a shorter distance than that he up and down it at the eighth. And whatever happened, he didn't even get within 20 feet. He hit it maybe slightly heavy or, or misjudged the run. And it was a very straightforward pitch, as equally straightforward as the one the day before, or Friday maybe on the eighth. And knocked it. It was 21 feet short. And he hold it. So... They both count exactly the same. They're both up and downs. They're both one out of one on that hole for the scramble. And yet they're two completely different golf data analysis opportunities. Because in the first one, sublime pitch and a tap-in. The second one, terrible pitch and a long-range putt hole. So we felt even the traditional metrics that were being used on golf weren't sufficiently detailed enough for our analysis um, and our objectives, which is to find out, well, where are we stronger or weaker? Because if we're getting up and down all the time from holding lengthy putts, then our chipping's not very good. But if we're getting up and down by, you know, tap-ins predominantly, then our chipping is very good. So that's that's a couple of examples or a few examples, I guess, of where the traditional metrics in the past didn't really help us. And uh, and strokes gained is a valuable addition um, to the world of golf. It's something we embrace with putting only, um, but something that we're programming now to introduce for other parts of the game. But it still won't be as valuable as the original model of looking at each shot. At, golf is one shot at a time. We believe that successful golf data analysis is examining one shot type at a time. And Graham, you guys have posted that a new site's coming. So what are some of the changes that you guys are making and I guess some of the improvements as well, just to the site and, and how you use it? Well, as I just mentioned just now, strokes gained is coming, but um, we have to be careful here because with putts gained, it's all about measuring our 15 year old young girl uh, against the best in the world, the PGA Pro Tour. So, you know, we know that the average of under 16 girls isn't within, you know, eight shots over 72 holes of the, the best pros in the world. So we have to be sensitive to the fact that it could be demotivating to see our performance on the putts gained metric being minus two, minus three, minus four all the time. Um, so we're introducing something that I don't think another innovation in, in world golf, I don't think it's been done before, is that we're allowing the user to set the level of where putts gained or strokes gained, which is new functionality that we're programming for, uh, is determined. And of course, with the amount of data we have, we can we can tell them that when it comes to putting, um, it's, it's PGA Tour plus 80%. So that, you know, that is the benchmark, which is average for under 16 level girls golf. There'll be a higher average for elite amateur men's golf. The difference between uh, amateurs are getting better at putting, particularly in England, we've noticed over the last five years, you know, there's been a very healthy trend like this. And, you know, what's interesting every year without fail, we have different you know wholesale changes of personnel in the in the squads and yet the averages are very very similar um year in year out with the exception of putting so whatever they're doing in terms of coaching uh, is working and we see that and so now the difference between elite amateurs and the professionals is approximately minus 0.5 minus 0.6 so two shots over 72 holes if the amateurs putt the same as they always do, and the pros putt average the same as they always do. The pros starts with a two-shot advantage over an elite amateur, including Walker Cup level, um, just from better putting alone. 
but that is an average. Nobody goes out and performs average every week. You know, an average is made up of great putting, bad putting, great putting, bad putting, not bad putting, et cetera, et cetera. And getting consistency is one of the goals that we work with with uh, our elite golfers because, you know, if we're up and down too often, it can the volatility isn't necessarily uh, a successful feature of productive golf. So, you know, strokes gained is coming. Um, we have directional misanalysis. We have performance rankings with a whole plethora and suite of things. But our priority has always been to train our coaches and our golfers to use the functionality that we've given them to the maximum first. So, you know, and there's not too many of us around that exhaust who are so geeky like I am that we exhaust all the functionality and, and it's, it's a simple truth. The more you look at data, the more that is revealed. It is a fascinating journey and uh, we'll never be at the end of it. It's always a case of, you know, how, and we're working on, a, on an app just now for measuring practice data because we can tell you exactly what you're doing on the golf course but, and your coach can tell you exactly what your launch monitors are doing. But what about converting that and getting the correlations between practice and performance? So, I'm working with um, a very good coach who spends his life on the road, mostly in America as well at the moment, um, capturing practice data as well so that uh, we can see the correlations between how good we are at certain golf skills on the course compared to what we're doing off the course during practice when we're measuring productive, measurable practice, which uh, is, is data again that we need to look at. But it's a never-ending journey, guys, and uh, we'll never get to the end of it. It's uh, oh. it's just fun walking along the journey. I think that's great, the, to be honest, Graham, with the, the practice uh, data as well, because he, what greater way to see if what you're doing uh, in practice, what you're working on with your coach, and, and uh, certainly got different shots that you might be working on for certain events. I mean, what greater way to see if they are working or if, if you still need to, to put in some extra hours on those uh, than to just have Here, Here's some early, early research. They all do better in practice than they do in the course. <laughs> yeah. Now, putting, less pressure, you know, more drills, um, consistency of surface, whatever surface, consistency of condition. Whereas when you're on the course, especially at pro level, well, even at amateur level, um, playing different competitions every week pre-COVID. Um, but it is starting again very soon, thank goodness. You know, you're on different surfaces every week and, you know, you might take to some and not and, and less to others. And um, the conditions are different. You know, it could be raining, it could be very windy, it could be challenging. So, but practice data we have found, um, and that goes with irons as well, you know, and driving. Um, if you're hitting irons off the same position to a mat and measuring through the launch monitor, that's not the same as being on the golf course where, you know, the variables are so, so many, um, where a blade of grass, uh, getting a flyer between ball and club face, or, or whether you land on an upslope or a downslope that can stun the ball in the front of the green or kick the ball to the back of the green, um, the wind, the gusts, there are so many variables in the, in the game of golf that we find that practice data is more consistent. But very important to coaches so that they can identify, you know, where the player's stronger or weaker, whether that be chipping, pitching, bunker play, whether it be medium irons, whether it be wedge play, whether it be driver or strategic three woods off tees or long approaches with three wood, you, you know, the practice data and, and all the coaches have really embraced the technology and the data that launch monitors um, give them GC2, TrackMan, FlightScope, et cetera. And uh, that's been a good innovation um, for, from a coaching viewpoint. However, it doesn't change the nature of the game. These are tools and we have to be careful not to get too wrapped up in them and use them for what they are. You know, I got sent the decade uh, stuff from Harbour Town, which is on this week, and uh, it's great for planning tee shot strategies. But in context, what do we use it for? It is a tool for which practice and preparation for helping us decide on our game plans. And game plans can change, obviously, with um, wind, 
and weather conditions and position on the leaderboard even. I noticed um, Hideki at the third was one of only two players I noticed on the Sunday at Augusta who took an iron off the third tee. You know, he had a healthy lead um, to start that day and it was a fabulous victory. Only won it by one at the end, but um, he was protecting his lead as early as the third hole because strategically his game plan was let's not get it into trouble. And it was a very, very tricky front left pin that the closer you got to the green, it was very, very difficult to get close. And um, we saw tons of very, very poor results um, from pitches and chips from 40 to 60 to 80 yards when trying to be cute and flop it up to a front left pin was very, very difficult. And that's, that's indeed the beauty of Augusta, of course. I think, Graham, like you said right there, is traditional uh, sort of strokes gained, if you like, um, would have you believe that you're better off being closer to the green. The closer to the green you are, the better chance you have, which may make sense on a, on a, on a regular basis. But in that particular instance, when you've got, I mean, I don't know what the, the yardage is, but probably seven yards deep, that green or, or whatever it is, with the wind blowing, you've you probably got more control coming in from further back. And this is where I think that the nature of golf hasn't changed. James, you know, at the end of the day, every decision has to be made at the right time. And we don't see every lie. I mean, sometimes you're looking at it, it's sitting up like a coconut on the fairway. Other times it's nestled and it just doesn't look quite as attractive. And, and therefore, you know, at say 13 and 15 at Augusta, you know, what decision is there to make it either go for the green or not? And we can't really tell from data, I would suggest, whether, oh, but it's much better to do it because the average number of shots from laying up um, is 4.92 on this hole, whereas the average number of shots taken from going to it is 4.62. So you're better off going for it. No. You know, for a start, you've talked about a difference of three-tenths of one shot. And I know that at the end of this hole, I'm going to have to record a four or a five. There is no 4.62 on my <laughs> yeah, scorecard or 4.92 on my scorecard. And anyway, you haven't seen this lie. It looks beautiful. And I can get there with a well-struck two-iron. And I'm going to take the two-iron. And I'm going to aim towards the pin and the bunker on the right here at 15, where I think it's the safest option. Or... On the same distance, I really don't like this lie. It's, it's nestling. It's just, and with that breeze coming here, now I'm just going to play a 120-yard shot here and then wedge on, which guarantees or should guarantee. I'm not going to bogey it. You know, I've no chance of putting it in the water unless your tiger. Oops, that didn't work. Um, so, yeah, there are, these are all individual decisions. And I think the beauty of the game is that we make individual decisions every time we step out there. And, Realistically, there aren't that many holes, certainly at Harbour Town. What, what decision is there to make? The ninth, you know, it's wide enough. Most of them are driving it now, uh, whereas in years gone past, perhaps it was narrower. Uh, there were more of them laying up. But Augusta, there are no decisions, really strategic decisions to be made off the tee. I mean, Carnoustie is less than an hour down here. My favourite golf course in, in Scotland, not my favourite golf course in the UK, Lytham, but there are very, very few strategic decisions to make at Carnoustie. Maybe 17, Island it's called, if in the right favourable conditions the wind is helping you. You can bang a driver over the other side of the second part of the burn. But realistically, it's one of the best driving courses of all time. There's very few tactical strategic decisions to be made there, um, unlike Lytham, where I remember Wilco Ninaber hit the biggest drive I think the third the third hole has ever seen in its life um, and at seven hit it with a driver and a seven iron um, I see the seventh as a driver all day every day doesn't matter what the conditions I hit driver there whereas half the field in the Lytham trophy will hit irons and play it as a three shotter so these are personal decisions and I remember one pro now uh, amateur in the Lytham trophy he hit driver at every single hole, apart from the eighth, which would, yeah, three would down there. But his driving results were absolutely tremendous. The only fairway he missed, he was in the bunker at 14, he, at 13, sorry, he was going for the green 
with his driver and he found himself in a bunker 40 yards short left of the pin, which was easy enough anyway. So, you know, nobody can tell, you know, you, you can't hit more than five drivers here at Liver, which I heard once, by the way. Um, you can't tell a group of players that because some are very confident with their drivers, others aren't. I mean, I, I would always hit driver because my three would so bad. You know, I mean, we're all individuals. We've all got our confidence and strengths and weaknesses. And I would use a putter from off the green because my wedges are so bad. You know, so it's it's very much a game of individual choices. And uh, whilst data can be useful in giving us an overall impression or picture of a whole, I think strategy is part of the game. And in fact, the recent uh, discussions about the green reading books and Aimpoint, you know, and Butch Harmon has been very, very strong in saying, well, you know, green reading is part of the game. I heard a quote a couple of nights ago from one of my amateur clients, actually. I'd never heard it before. I loved it. He said, if you can't read greens, this is Gary Player. If you can't read greens, go and sell tomatoes. I don't know why I find that funny. It's surreal. But, you know, green reading is a skill. And like decision making, that's part of the game. And uh, I'm not convinced that just because data proves that it's 0.3 of a shot better to go for it rather than lay up that we should just follow the data. I think it's an individual decision. So again, that's part of uh, the evolution of golf, I guess. Yeah, I've got, so obviously you're in Scotland. I got one just kind of curiosity. I'm sure you've been to a lot of opens, right? Like open championships. What are some of like the good memories and maybe like things that stand out to you at some of the opens that you've been to? Um, 1977. I saw every shot that Nicholas and Watson played and the jewel in the sun. It was a very famous open. I loved that. 32 years later, I saw the same golfer shoot the same number on the same golf course in the same golf competition. I saw Tom Watson in um, 2009 shoot a 65, which was the same number that he shot on the Sunday when he won the open in 1977 a period separated by 32 years. And that was a year where Stuart Singh, who barring an absolute disaster, will be the winner. He's been magnificent this week at Harbour yeah, Town. He should well. win the Heritage. And um, he broke a lot of hearts that day by beating Tom Watson in the playoff. And Tom was playing with uh, a very young 16-year-old, Matteo Manicero, who we all thought, you know, given his record, and won the British Amateur at 16 and uh, won very early as a teenager on the European Tour. Who could have predicted that he's in the golfing wilderness at the moment? But he, he was very, very impressive um, playing with Tom Watson that day. And Sergio Garcia, who was the third best golfer that week of the three of them, and he looked it. Um, he went on to win a green jacket and is a phenomenal talent and always was. He was just out of sorts that particular week. So, you know, I would say those, those were memorable but everyone I go to is memorable and hoping COVID permitting to be at Sandwich at Royal St. George's this year, which is one of my favourite links. So I was there at 84 when Seve had the fist bump. I saw that one live. I saw John Daly um, beating Costantino Rocca um, live. I saw Paul Laurie winning Carnoustie live. I, I missed my transport home, which, believe it or not, was a hovercraft. They, I lived in St. Andrews. They were charging us 20 quid to get hovercraft from St. Andrews to Carnoustie and back um, yeah. at preset times. It was only like 12 minutes to cross the water. And there was no way I was getting the hovercraft home. And I stayed and I watched local boy um, Paul Laurie win the playoff. And it, it was absolutely outstanding. So I did get home eventually. I got a train and my <laughs> wife picked me up at the other end. But uh, I would say everyone, Chris, is um, memorable and has its own. Uh, I've never not enjoyed one yet, and I've been to the majority of them since 1977, basically. And um, yeah, it's um, it's just a, a pinnacle of golf. And Augusta and the Open, I think, uh, are the pinnacles in our game. And there's always magic to be seen there. I think we'd yeah. both agree with that, wouldn't we, Chris? Well, yeah, and you know, one of the shames of my life, I've been to Europe a few times, but never up to Scotland to play some golf, unfortunately. So, well, give us a shout when you're over. There's a, there's a few <laughs> yes, famous yeah. courses you might enjoy. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a totally different game, definitely. And I don't think we understand on this side of the pond just how hard it is like to play in the wind, play the bounces and everything. It's yeah. It's well, well, it might just be different. I mean, I think your golf's hard. You've got these massive trees that you've got to yeah. avoid, whereas we have less of them. It's it's a different game for sure, but uh, it's fun. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. James, any more? Are you you pretty much good? No, I'm. Uh, I, I think it's been brilliant. You know, I'm. Yeah. Uh, I could listen to you for hours, Graham. You know, <laughs> yes, talk about statistics. <laughs> we could. That's my fault. I could talk for hours, but no, we could. Um, it's such a diverse game. We could talk for literally days on it yeah, and yeah. not scratch the surface. And uh, as long as it's a journey, we're all keeping our eyes open and learning as we go. Uh, and certainly, performance measurement teaches us a lot not just about what we do as individuals but about the game itself and as i say it's um it's been a fun journey and long may it continue yeah. agreed and, and i think for both of us you know we've got so much out of using golf data lab and obviously we're excited to see the new website and, and see the new changes um we, we can only encourage everyone to to get on board with this and it i know like we said it, it's you have to be committed to wanting to improve, of course you do. But it, it doesn't take a long time to sort of track your stats. You know, you just record your yardage, you, you sort of record your shots and what club you used. It's not that difficult to build the habit, but you can get... Well, that, that, that was by design rather than an accident yeah. because I wanted customer maximum user-friendliness built into the data capture function. And um, quite an interesting phrase the programmers use. They call it maximum click economy. So we literally have, you know, the least amount of clicks that you need or keystrokes or now that we've got the app as well. It cannot mathematically be any less to capture what we need to know about our games. So, yeah, I, th I think that's a key. But as I said to us earlier, it's not for everyone. You know, we're not all analytical and geeky like me and maybe Chris. But, um, <laughs> you know, if you want to improve, then you need to, you know, as you said, the, the old famous quote, you can only you know, manage what you can measure. And uh, it's not for everyone. But uh, for those that uh, have that desire to understand and improve, it's a it's a platform they can they can certainly use. And you said and definitely I was, gonna, I was just going to say. If you're going to spend an hour on the range, you know, multiple times every week, you can spend, it literally takes 10 minutes to record your round. Maybe even five less. minutes. Yeah. Maximum, five minutes. Yeah, maximum applicability. But <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you spend, unfortunately, in my day, it was less than three hours for a round of golf when we were kids, but, you know, over four hours now and even worse at some clubs. But uh, yeah, for four hours on the course, five minutes to record your shots. It's not a huge time investment. But it's a big time, it's a valuable time investment yeah. with what it gives you back. Yeah, so thanks for your, uh, thanks for the opportunity to chat, guys, and uh, hope to do it again sometime. We really appreciate it, Graham. Yeah, we've loved it, Graham. So uh, thank you very Fantastic. much for your time. No problem. All the best. Enjoy the golf tonight, guys. We will. Cheers. You too. All the best. Thank you.